my brother-in-law told me not too long ago that his church was going through a book study of a book that came out about 15 years ago written by a man named Jerry Bridges. You may have come across uh, Jerry Bridges and his work before, and it is a book titled Respectable Sins. How many of you have ever encountered or read the book Respectable Sins? Anyone? Um, this, the, the, the premise of the book, I understand, by Mr. Bridges, is that there are many sins that are very disrespectable sins, and we know them, and we name them, and we shame them. They are sins that we are aware of their grievousness, and oftentimes, frankly, they are in the dark because they're very embarrassing sins. They're humiliating sins. They're the kind of sins that every one of us would look at and say, that is grievous. That's wrong. And yet there's another class of sins that Mr. Bridges calls respectable sins. Because not only do we tend to harbor those sins in our own lives, we tend to justify them when we commit them. Now, there are a number of respectable sins that Mr. Bridges identifies, but two in particular are going to be relevant to the next two sermons that I preach, Lord willing, here on Sunday evenings. One is the sin of discontentment. It's a respectable sin because, number one, all of us are very prone to it in ways that not all of us may be prone to murder or theft or a particular grievous kind of sexual sin or lust. And so we can say, well, we all are, are in it, but discontentment is also a respectable sin because how often do we excuse it? Yeah, I'm discontented. Yeah, I'm grumbling. Yeah, I'm complaining. But I have cause for it. In a way that we would never get someone give someone the, the graph to say, well, I had cause to commit murder. I had cause to run into pornography. I had cause to do... No, we say, no, 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 no. No excuses there, buddy. And yet when it comes to grumbling, to complain, well, wait a second. I, you don't know how hard I have it. It's a respectable sin. Another one that he describes is ingratitude or unthankfulness. It's a respectable sin. We excuse why we so often fall into that sin. And this idea of these respectable sins is not something that started 15 years ago with Jerry Bridges' insight. It's something that we see throughout Scripture. And these two sins in particular are either exemplified for us as we read through our Old Testaments together, or they are warned against in those same passages. Tonight, we're going to take on the sin of discontentment, complaining, grumbling, murmuring. We're going to hold the mirror of God's word, but more specifically, the mirror of the Israelites themselves to see where and how that respectable sin has taken root in our life. And next week, God willing, we're going to look into the book of Deuteronomy. And we're going to see God's warning about another kind of sin, the sin of ingratitude, of unthankfulness, or as he puts it, beware lest when you come into the promised land and you get full, you forget. Now I want you to see how these two sins are polar opposites, but so often categorize a different circumstance of life. 
Are you in suffering and difficulty? Then you better beware of discontentment. Are you in plenty and provision and satisfaction and profit? Then you better watch out for forgetfulness. You better watch out for ingratitude. And it seems like our Christian lives can ping-pong between these two respectable sins, between discontentment in times of difficulty and ingratitude and unthankfulness in times of plenty. And that means over these next two weeks, I hope that all of us will be holding God's word up to our hearts as a mirror to look at these, look for these respectable sins and ask God to help us utterly eradicate them in our life. Let's start with this first respectable sin of discontentment. Now, I said a respectable sin is often one that we justify. And even if we wouldn't come out and say it expressly, inwardly, we say, yeah, God, I know it's wrong, but, but. And I want us, therefore, to look at one passage that I think is going to strip bare the excuse, the justification. In Numbers chapter 11 and verse 1, listen to what the record is for us here. And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. We had a little family altar on that verse a few weeks back, and I just told my kids, I said, you just need to know, when you are complaining, you are displeasing the Lord. When you are complaining, you are are displeasing the Lord. It does not matter what your justification is. It does not matter what your excuse are. When you are complaining, you are displeasing the Lord. Now, how many of us would be willing to say, I accept God's word for what it is, and there is never an excuse for complaining? Never a justification. It doesn't matter how hard it is right now. My complaining displeases the Lord. Listen to what chapter 11 says. And the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burnt among them and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. How much does our complaining displease the Lord? Enough that the fire started. Now we move on to chapter 21 of Numbers. And by the way, we're skipping some prime complaints of the Israelites. We're skipping chapter 14 when they complained about what the report that the spies brought back. You remember that, that utterly, that utterly canceled the opportunity of an entire generation of people to get into the promised land. That was God's response to their complaint that was rooted in unbelief. We're skipping their complaint. You remember after Korah died, the people got together and said to Moses and Aaron, you're, you're killing the people of God, complaining, murmuring. This was their repeated offense over and over and over again, not only in the book of Exodus, but now into the book of Numbers. This might have been their prime sin along with their unbelief, murmuring and complaining. Now look with me at chapter 21, our text for tonight. Verse 4 says, And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom, and the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way, and the people spake against God and against Moses. Discouraged, grieved, and complaining. Grumbling. The title of the message tonight 
is grieved and grumbling. Grieved and grumbling. And next week, God willing, we'll look at the polar opposite. Full and forgetful. Grieved and grumbling, one circumstance to fall into sin, a respectable sin. Full and forgetful, another respectable sin. Let's look, first of all, at this respectable sin. The respectable sin of discontentment, the respectable sin of complaining. And what I want to see, first of all, here are the circumstances that underlie or that underlay this respectable sin. What kind of circumstances were the Israelites in? Well, you remember now at this point in their journey, God had already given the judgment to the entire older generation that came out of Egypt. You will not come into the land. Now, that would be a very discouraging thing. But it would help if we saw a map. You'd help if you saw a map. This would be one time that would be great, actually, to have a screen and be able to just put it up there for all of you. Because the map would help. Because right now, if you can picture, if you've seen a map of the general land of Israel in your mind's eye, the people are coming south from Egypt up into the, toward the southern part of the land of Israel. What would today be the land of Israel? And as they come up to what is called Mount Hor, they are confronted, if you'll see in verse 1, by King Arid the Canaanite. And he dwelt in the south, right? The southern part of the modern land of Israel. And he heard tell that Israel came, and he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. And you'll see in verse 3, the Lord delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them in their cities, and he called the name of the place Hormah. So now the Israelites might be thinking, we're ready to go. We're ready to go right up through the south, right into the land of Israel. And then God said, uh-uh. Uh-uh. You know what they did? If you can just imagine the map of Israel, they're down here in the south. They could have gone straight north, right into the land of Israel. But do you know what they would have done? They would have had to go through Edom. And they didn't go through Edom. You know what they did? God had them go due west. Not only due west, if you will, they were going south and around the land of Egypt, above the Dead Sea. They had to go now west of the Dead Sea and come all the way around and cross the Jordan far northerly of where they were. They had to take a huge detour. Now, I don't know about you, but detours frustrate me. I don't like detours. And do you know what I especially don't like doing? I don't like going across my own tracks. How many of you guys, probably guys more than gals, but how many guys have you have ever taken a wrong turn and wake, gone way off the path, and your wife is saying, you know, just trace your steps back to where you went, and we'll get back and we'll make the right turn? How many of you guys are like me and say, no, I don't want to go back where I came. I'll find my way there. I don't want to trace my steps. I don't want to go backwards. That's admitting defeat. That's admitting a detour. No, I'm going to find my way back to the original route a different way. If you are, if you're like that, you're like me, okay? And now you can imagine now as they are, let's just go north. And now suddenly they're going back on a detour around the land of Edom. And you know, you know where they are? In the desert, in the wilderness. Their circumstances 
were brutal. And notice what they say. The soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. That word much discouraged is a wonderful picturesque word. Do you know actually the way it's often translated in our Bibles, in our Old Testament Bibles? To reap. To cut down. Like you were to go through the field and start cutting down the wheat or the barley with, with uh, a, a threshing instrument, with a, with, a, with a reaping instrument. And you say, what does that mean? Well, think about the picture. Have you ever felt cut down? Barren? It feels like someone came and took, uh, and, and took a reaping instrument and just cut down all, everything that was green and that was harvestable in your life, and you're sitting there naked and empty and frustrated, discouraged, utterly cast down because of your circumstances. That's where the Israelites were. And notice what their concern was. Will you notice with me in verse 5? And the people spake against God and against Moses, Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Why have you brought us to die? There is no bread, neither is there any water. Here's what they were concerned about first. What they didn't have. How many of us complain because of what we don't have? God. I want something. You know how badly I want something. You know how badly I need something, and I don't have it. I'm discouraged. I feel cut down. I feel hopeless and irrelevant. And God, I'm discouraged. And do you know when that happens? How often do we justify our complaining? How often do we justify our grumbling either to God or to others? God, you know, I want this. I need this. Other people have this. I don't. We complain. And then we justify it's a respectable sin to complain when life is so hard. Now, I'm not trying to minimize how hard your experience or my experience, me, I'm not trying to do that at all. I'm just saying it, we justify it. But notice what also they were complaining about. And our soul loathes, loathes this light bread. They not only were complaining about what they didn't have, they were complaining about what? What they did have. And what did they have? Manna. Now, this word here, we're not going to understand really what they're saying unless we understand what the idea of that word light, this light bread. You know what the idea of that is? It's talking light not just in terms of it's light, it doesn't weigh much. It's light in terms of it being insubstantial. Here's what they're saying. We are loathing this worthless bread. Worthless bread. I want you to imagine that you said that about the manna that God had been miraculously providing you for years. Worthless. Now again, let's be honest. How would you like eating manna? Every sing- the same thing every single day for decades on end. How would you like that? Would you have been tempted at one point to say, you know, God, this feels pretty insubstantial to me. This feels pretty light, fair, I'd like a little bit of variety, please. Well, we already know they complained about that. And God sent the, the, the quail onto the camp, and he sent leanness into their souls along with it. We complain not only about what we don't have, we then complain about the provision that we do have. And yet we justify it. It's a respectable sin because, God, you know how hard it is for me right now. It's a respectable sin, and this is exactly where the people of Israel were. Let's see, secondly, a very severe reproof. 
very severe reproof. Will you notice with me in verse 6? And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Now, first question, what's a fiery serpent? No, I don't think this means that a serpent was on fire. That would be something to behold. Probably this. It probably either was that the, the serpents were red or orange, like the color of fire, and so they were called fiery serpents. But probably more likely, it probably the bite of the serpent produced a fiery burning pain. It was likely that the venom, the poison that was injected into the person, the victim who had been bit, was just like your arm or, or, or hand or foot was on fire. It was a fiery serpent. Now, this is where I want to stop and ask you. You have heard the phrase before, the punishment fits the crime. And that's something all of us should desire when it comes to judgment. The punishment should fit the crime. Let me ask you this. Do you think the punishment fit the crime? Be honest. People complained because they were having a really hard time. And their reward was fiery serpents that caused excruciating pain and death. Would you say, all right, that's right. The punishment fits the crime. And be honest with yourself, because you complained this week. How would you feel if a fiery serpent showed up in your bedroom this week when you complained? Would you feel like, okay, God, you're treating me exactly what I deserve? I wonder if the answer to what I'm saying to this is no, because these sins are respectable. God, we all struggle with discontentment at times. We all struggle with complaining. We all do it when we're having a hard time. God, these are understandable sins. And God says, really? Because my view of complaining is to send fiery serpents and they die. Whoa! What's going on here? What is going on with this severe reproof that is happening? Well, we need to understand, really, I think, what's underlying the sin of complaining. And it's, it, 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 it helps for us, I think, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want you to just listen. You can turn there if you'd like and keep your finger in Numbers chapter 21. But this passage is referenced in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Listen to what verse 6 says. Now these things, these Old Testament stories, why do we read the Old Testament? You should not go without reading the Old Testament, friends. You need to. Why? Because Paul says these things were for our examples. God intended them to be for your example. Why? To the intent we should not lust after evil things or crave evil things as they also lusted or craved. Neither be ye idolaters as were some of them. Neither let us commit fornication, sexual sin, as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Now listen to this, verse 9. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. That's this passage. What does the inspired author tell us was going on in Numbers chapter 21? They were tempting Christ. Now, until you understand that, you're not going to be able to understand God's view of your complaining and my complaining. How could they tempt Christ? Now, the word tempt there is not, see if I can allure him into sin. That's not the idea. The sin is testing Christ. They were testing Christ. How on earth were they testing Christ? Well, let's think about it for just a second. 
Notice, first of all, in verse 5. Go back to Numbers chapter 21 now and look at verse 5. It tells us that the people spoke against who? Against God. Numbers 21 and verse 5, and the people spake against God and against Moses. And what did they say? Wherefore have ye brought us up out of, uh, out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? They were going through a really difficult circumstance. And who brought them there? God did. Can I just be really direct? When you complain about your circumstances, you are complaining about the one who ordained your circumstances. When you complain about the difficulty of your life, you are complaining about the one who authorized that difficulty in your life for his purposes. You know, an example of this, in our household, raising little kids, do you know what we say at our dinner table? You may not say, I don't like this food. You, that, those may, that word may not come out of your mouth. You may not say, I don't like this. Why? Because what are you really saying when you say, I don't like the food? You are not complaining about the food. You are complaining about the chef. You are complaining about the one who made the food. And so we just say it's off limits. You may not say, I don't like this. And in the same way, when we complain about what God provides us, we are not complaining about our circumstances. Ultimately, we are saying to God, you don't know what you're doing. You don't. I don't trust you to have what is best for me in mind. When the people of Israel complained, it displeased the Lord. Why? Because the complaint was against him. They were rebelling in unbelief against him. But not only this, what does it mean if not only was it against God, but 1 Corinthians 10 said it was a test of Christ. This is the remarkable thing when we realize what they were saying about this bread. This is worthless, insignificant bread that God has provided. And do you want to know, I think what Paul's logic is, is this. Do you remember when he said they drank of that rock? They drank from the water of that rock that followed them. And that rock was who? Christ. Because that living water that flowed to, to quench their thirst was a picture of Jesus Christ himself who would bring the living water for you and for me. And friends, what about that manna? What was that manna? It was a picture of the bread of life. Jesus Christ, as God tells them in, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. This was a picture of Jesus Christ himself and his everlasting provision. And Paul says, when they were rejecting that provision as insubstantial, as worthless, they were actually rejecting, in a sense, their Messiah himself. They were saying, your provision is not enough for me. What were they doing? They were testing his long-suffering. They were testing his patience. They were testing his provision. They were testing his grace in what he had graciously offered them. And friends, it is the same whenever 
I complain. I am testing Christ. I am testing his provision. Because what I am saying is this. God, you are not enough. You are not enough. I need something else more than you. Or we say, what you have given me is not enough. And I just want this to sink into all of our hearts, myself included, to, to, so that there is a zero tolerance policy in my life when it comes to complaining, when it comes to murmuring. That this week, the moment a murmuring or complaining thought comes to mind, my response would be zero tolerance to not have any respect, to not have any justification for that murmuring because I see it as a test of Christ's gracious provision for us. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 2 and verse 14. He says, do all things without murmurings and disputings. All things means everything. Everything this week without one complaint, without one murmur, without one grumble. Or as Ephesians 5 puts it, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, a respectable sin. Secondly, a severe reproof. Are we going to embrace what God says about our own complaining? And third, let's look at what I'm going to call a restoration. This is beautiful. Do you see what God does here? Look at verse number 7. Therefore, what, therefore, what? The much people of Israel died at the hands of these fiery serpents. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. You notice the first thing here is real, true repentance. We have sinned against the Lord. We have sinned against God. We are complaining about you ultimately. We've done wrong. The first thing that you and I need to do when we notice complaint in our life is to humbly and thoroughly repent. Not to justify, not to excuse, not to say, well, God, you understand, don't you? No, it is to put away all our excuses and where complaint has lodged in our hearts this week, we need to humble ourselves tonight before God and say, God, I have no excuse. That was dead wrong because he was complaining about you. That's what it was. It was testing you. Simple. It's repentance. Notice how God responds. In verse number 9, and sorry, verse 8, And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. The hymn we sang before the message tonight, Look and live, my brother. Look to Jesus now and live. That's this passage. Look and live. Everyone that looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent, one of these fiery serpents, had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. There's a snake on a pole. Now I want us to stop there for just a moment. You know where I'm going with this. You're well-trained people. But I want to ask you, what did that serpent symbolize? We're going to get to Christ just a minute. But what did that mean to the people of Israel? Their complaint had produced a poisonous, venomous, 
beast in their midst that was bringing great pain and affliction to them. And then Moses takes a picture of that snake, that reward, that judgment of God against their sin, and put it up against a pole. Do you know what the picture is? This is the poison of your complaining. This is the poison of your murmuring against God. Now stop there for just a moment. When you and I recognize what complaining actually is and get rid of our excuses, get rid of our justifications and say, that's a poison. When I complain, it's a poison. It's a poison that in God's judgment will destroy me if I allow it. That is sin and it is exceeding sinful. This is a picture of judgment. It's a picture of the effect of sin. But of course, it's more than that. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 3 and verses 14 to 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Those are famous words, friends, and it it precedes the most famous verse in all the Bible, John 3 and verse 16. Can we just zone in right here for just a moment? The picture of Jesus being lifted up on a cross was the picture of the grace of God for the forgiveness of the sin of complaining. The forgiveness and deliverance of God from the sin of murmuring and grumbling those Israelites who had been bitten by those poisonous snakes looked up to that pole and they saw the snake that symbolized God's judgment against their sin. And when they looked upon it, acknowledging their wrong, recognizing that is the judgment for my sin, the healing of God was complete in delivering them graciously by the goodness of God. And now Jesus looks back to that serpent on a pole and he said, I'm going to be lifted up too. Those nails in my hands are going to be like the sin that pounds me into this cross. My hanging there is going to be like that poisonous snake. You say, how could Jesus be depicted as a poisonous snake? Because this, because he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. When Jesus hung up on that cross, he hung up as a symbol of God's righteous wrath, of God's righteous judgment against your sin and my sin, including our dreadful sin of complaining against God, of murmuring against his provision. It is my complaints that nailed him to that cross. It is your discontentment that nailed him to that cross. He is there because you and I sin against him in the way we grumble and murmur. That sin alone could have held him to that tree. And just as God hung that serpent up on a pole, to be the picture of man's forgiveness and gracious restoration of God. Jesus on that cross is your gracious provision for the forgiveness not only 
of your grumbling and your complaining, but entirely of all of your sin. You say, what does that mean for us? There's something wonderful about this. Do you know, as best I can tell, Numbers chapter 21 is the last time before the entry of the promised land that is recorded that the people of God complained about God. As best I can tell, it's the last time they murmured about God. Now, were they fully and finally delivered from that complaining spirit? No, I'm sure not. But there was something about this judgment. There was something about this gracious deliverance that in a sense freed them, it appears, as a nation from this kind of destructive, despising, and discontentment in the provision of God. And I just want to tie this to you and to me for just a second. What I am convinced of is that if you want deliverance from your own grumbling spirit, from your own discontentment, from your own complaining, you cannot get there without a settled, steady view of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. You can't do it. The more you look to your circumstances and try to will yourself, and it's really not so bad as it is, you're going to fall short. But friends, when you and I look at the cross, when you and I see that it was my complaining that nailed him to that cross, when you see that it was the poison of God's judgment against sin that I deserve for this sin, and I let all my excuses go, and I let all my justification go, and I say, God, it is only in the grace of your Son that I have the forgiveness of sin, and it is only in your gracious provision that I can trust. You and I might be delivered too. You and I might be able to look at the difficult circumstances of our life and say, you know, if Jesus died for me, if his gracious provision is to transform me into the image of his son, if his cup of suffering and baptism of suffering, as we understood this morning, is the cup that I am called to drink and the baptism that I am called to be immersed in, well, then I, in everything, I can give thanks because this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning me. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus who hung on that cross as the gracious provision for your and my sin of complaining, of murmuring, of grumbling. Whatever circumstances you're in tonight, my friend, wherever you are within the sound of my voice, tonight would you look to the cross of Jesus Christ? Would you call your grief and grumbling exactly what it is? It is nothing more than poisonous sin that has no excuse, no matter how difficult your circumstances appear tonight. And would all of us tonight come up to the foot of the cross and kneel before the one who died because of my grumbling, because of my complaining, would we look to him? Would we accept his gracious provision? And from this time forward, would we respond with gratitude?
and that was Grumble.